Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Continuing our series today, The Ten Commandments, let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, and Dr. Newfeld will present to us a message entitled, The Sacred Name. Bill Moyer's book, A World of Ideas, he tells a story of a man named Jacob Needleman. Jacob Needleman was an observer at the launch of Apollo 17 way back in December of 1972. It was one of those Apollo missions that landed on the moon and successfully came back. It was a night launch, and according to Needleman, there were hundreds of cynical reporters all over the lawn drinking beer and wisecracking and just waiting for the launch of that 35-story high rocket. Well, the countdown came and then the launch, and Needleman tells what happened next. The first thing you see is an extraordinary orange light, which is just at the limit of what you can bear to look at. Everything is illuminated with this light. Then comes this thing slowly rising up in total silence because it takes a few seconds for the sound to come across. You hear a whoosh, it enters right into you. You can practically hear jaws dropping sense of wonder fills everyone in the whole place as this thing goes up and up. The first stage ignites this beautiful blue flame. It becomes like a star, but you realize there are humans on it. And then there's total silence. People just get up quietly, helping each other. They're kind. They open doors. They look at one another, speaking quietly and interestedly. These are suddenly moral people because the sense of wonder, the experience of wonder had made them moral. Well, I want today to speak of a much greater sense of wonder than that which was felt at the, at the launch of Apollo 17. The wonder I want to speak about is described in Exodus 33 and 34. The sense of wonder begins with very much the same scene as Needleman described, something like the reporters drinking beer and wisecracking, but, but in this case, it's not reporters, it's Israel having built a golden calf. They've already broken the first and second commandments while they're in camp before the sacred mountain. And God speaks. He will not go with Israel any longer. He's angry. And then comes, well, it's frankly one of the great prayers in the Bible. So I'll read only very brief parts of it, but I'm reading Exodus 33, 15, and 16. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? See, Moses simply can't conceive of life without the presence of God. And isn't that a fascinating thought? I mean, there are those of us who are the opposite. We, we can't conceive of life in the presence of God. You know, for some, life just seems, well, ordinary. You know, life's about a job and a family and about friends and, and money and vacations and careers and birthdays and about getting old and then dying. But for some, life is sacred. It's filled with wonder. One just never knows when, when you're going to round the corner and be standing in the presence of holiness. You know, for some, all of life is lived in the presence of God and the thought that the wonder, the sacredness, the, the divine presence could be gone, it's simply unthinkable. Now, we're going to come back to that thought because that thought is at the heart of the third commandment. And I'm reading Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, the third commandment is simple. 
The Hebrew word for vain, it's the word shav, and it can mean both vanity and it can mean falsehood. Now, in order to understand that, let me show you how the word gets used in Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. It says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. That word for false is also translated in the old King James Version as vanity. And interestingly enough, what you have in this verse is a bit of Hebrew parallelism. The next line, that is, to swear deceitfully, explains falsehood or vanity. In other words, to take the name of the Lord in vain is to use the name of the Lord falsely, or to swear by it falsely, or to speak in a trivial manner, or to use it when lying, or to use it when cursing, or to use it in any way in which it was not intended to be used. Now, how do I then apply this command to my life? How should I obey it? Well, simply in this way. Commit that you will not introduce the name of God into your speech except to pray or to express praise or to bring glory to that name. The name of the Lord or God or Yahweh or any other name that God has claimed for himself and by which he has revealed himself. That name was introduced into our language for only these three express purposes. We were to invoke the name when we pray. We, we were to invoke the name as we worship, and we are to speak of that name to others, and in so doing, express the greatness of that name, nothing else. All other uses of the name is vain, it is false, it is deceitful. And that's what this command says, it's simple. And because it was possible to let something slip out of our mouths that is vain or false, and because the command promises that guilt will come upon us if we do that. Well, the ancient Hebrews refused to mention the name of Yahweh at all. When they wrote the name, they would bathe themselves first lest they be unclean. And when they read the name, they would not say Yahweh because their lips were too unclean and they would say Adonai, which means Lord. But they would never allow themselves to utter the name lest they desecrate their lips. And in this way, they thought they would be sure not to break the third command. Uh, but there's a huge but here. All the commands are, in fact, internal. Let's get back to Moses and his prayer to God. Remember, because of Israel's idolatry, God has threatened to remove his presence, and, and Moses can't imagine that. And in that way, Moses is like so many of us today, who also can't imagine a world that's not infused with God's presence. Let me give you an example. Imagine you have a hockey puck at home, or maybe it's a baseball or a football, but it's been signed by your sports hero. It's special. Maybe it's under glass because your sports hero perhaps played with that puck and now has touched that puck and now has signed that puck. You know, did you know that many people feel that way about the world? They see a plant touched and created by God. Every tree, every flower, every rock, every lake, every ocean, every mountain, every insect, every animal, and every person created and displayed by the Creator. The whole universe displays His glory. If they study science in school, they know they are on sacred ground. And there's more. Not only is God the creator, he's also the sovereign God overseeing everything in the universe. In this sense, no event is accidental. Every encounter is a divine encounter. Every conversation, every inconvenience, every joy, every sorrow, every small and great event is arranged by the God who sustains and governs our lives. There's a profound mystery and a wonder in that. 
that there's still more. God speaks always in his word, the Bible, but also he speaks in the sense of inner impression. He speaks through other people. He speaks to our hearts. All of life is communicating with him. And Moses says, if your presence will not go with me, he can't go and do anything without God's presence. Now, let me continue in that passage. I'm now at Exodus 33, verses 17 to 19. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, or my name, Yahweh. And if you know the rest of the passage, you're going to remember that God placed his hand over Moses' face so that he would not see his glory. For if he had witnessed the glory and the splendor of God, he would not have survived the event. But God allowed Moses to see the fleeting embers of his glory, something that, as you remember, so physically affected him that when he came down from that mountain, he didn't know that the skin of his face was shining. But what Moses witnessed that day is the glory of the Lord passed before him is that God pronounced his name. You know, Exodus 34, verse 6 to 8 says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. That's what the name means. It speaks of God's forgiveness, speaks of his righteousness. It speaks of every single human being being accountable before that name. The name evokes worship, fear, joy, faith, passion, submission, reverence, silence, and the bending of the knee. That name must, for that reason, be used only in that fashion. We should always bear in mind that we use the name of God unlike the use of any other name, for that name is the full object of our adoration. Hi, this is Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. We believe Bible teaching is critical for God's people, and your support is critical in making the daily Bible teaching program with Dr. Neufeld available on this station. But we know there's times when you may miss the radio program, so we want to remind you of all the opportunities available for free for your use and convenience. At backtothebible.ca, you can search through a library of messages and series, both audio and video with Dr. John, but also learn more about our ministry podcasts, YouTube channels, mobile applications, and print resources. Our desire is to serve you so that the Bible teaching you can trust is available to as many people in as many ways as possible. For more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Let me read a quote from an article written by the late Arthur Pink. He said, Whensoever we make mention of him before whom the seraphim veil their faces, we ought seriously and solemnly to ponder his infinite majesty and glory 
and bow our hearts in deepest prostration before that name. And then a few sentences later in that same article, Pink goes on to say, that name is not to be sported with and tossed to and fro upon every light tongue. Oh, my reader, form the habit of solemnly considering whose name it is you are about to utter, that it is the name of him who is present with thee, hearing thee pronounce it, who is jealous of his honor and who will dreadfully avenge himself upon those who have slighted him. So let's get back to the third command. Exodus 20, verse 7 says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So let's get as practical as we can. How may we use the name, and in what way do we take the name in vain? Before I set out a number of helpful principles, let me read one incident from Leviticus 24, verse 10 to 16, which illustrates just how seriously God takes this command. That passage says, Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp, and the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelomith, the daughter of Divri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. So from our perspective, we might say that, that whatever else the third command says, it tells us, that we must never use the name as a curse. It's a great sin against God. It fits in God's top 10 list. It's lawlessness. It's considered by God's international rule of law a crime against holiness itself. I'll now make this plain. If you made a habit of using God's name when you want to damn someone or something, know that your soul is in great peril. Come to Christ, confess your great sin, and plead with him for his mercy. God's name is never to be used in cursing. But God's name is also never to be used for emphasis. I know that some have gotten quite accustomed to using God's name as an expression, saying things like, Oh my God, I'm so thankful for the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he suffered death for you and I so that we would not have to be stoned. But we need a new commitment. The commitment is that we will never use either God or Lord or anything as an expression. The sacred name is not a common name. Remember Arthur Pink, the seraphim cover their faces to say the name, and those seraphim have not sinned as you have. How much more then that we should not use the name in that way? Let me use another example. The sacred name is never to be used in humor. Have you told a joke with God in it, which is thought to be funny among profane people like yourself? How is it that you feel emboldened to say such a thing? You have no idea of whom you speak. Do you think that you'll stand at the judgment and feel funny or profane or cavalier? Have you never been converted so that you would worship at his feet? How then would you worship at one moment and be profane at the next? Do you really not fear God? Have you not heard the words of Jesus? Listen to his words. I'm reading Luke 12, 4 to 5. 
I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, I've given the negative side of the command. Do not take the sacred name in a common way. Don't take it in vain. There also is a positive part of this command, things that are demanded of us. You know, first, if we invoke the name in pledge, we are bound by that pledge. In other words, the name means integrity. God never speaks one way and then says something else. Listen to what Jesus said. He says, again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. That found in Matthew 5, to 35. You know, in Christ's day, some people had taken to using all sorts of oaths that would have been used to emphasize a point. If you, know, if you swore by the temple, it was one thing, and if you swore by the gold in the temple, it was something else, and if you swore by God, well, that was really something else, and all of that swearing and taking of oaths, in fact, it was just intended to get away with lying. And Christians today can do the same thing. All sorts of people have done business in church. Do business with a brother, they say, and then cheat someone. And so they invoke the name of Christ in order to hide not keeping their word. And so the name, when it is used, demands truthfulness and the keeping of our word. Have you ever heard someone say something that sounds like this? Swear to God it's true, they'll say. Why do you invoke the name of God? Jesus said it very well in Matthew 5, 37. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more comes from the evil one. Now, we've been going through our study without coming to the the final thing about taking the name of the Lord in vain. I've talked about profanity and the name for emphasis. We're not to do that, for that name is majestic glory. I've also talked about the name of salvation so that we would treat the name of Jesus and his glory properly. I've talked about promise keeping, for that means integrity. But there's one more thing that perhaps holds everything together. The sacred name inspires us to submission and repentance. You know, it's with this in mind that I read Isaiah 52, 5 to 6. It says, Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. The rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. You know, Paul the Apostle quotes that very verse in Romans 2, 24, and he puts it this way. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So let me speak very frankly here. Many of us know what has happened to the Roman Catholic Church as priests were involved in sexually molesting little boys and others. Do you know what happened because of that? The name of God was blasphemed in the non-Christian community because of that. Now I can go on. All of us know what happened when televangelists years ago uh, misused the name or large church pastors were found to be involved in both financial and sexual scandals. The name of God, in consequence, was blasphemed in the wider culture because of that. It doesn't end there. If today you call yourself a Christian and right now you're a lawbreaker, you're unethical in your business, you're involved in adultery or sexual sin, you create conflict at your work because of your pride and your arrogant attitude, if you're behaving in a way that breaks Christ's law, the name, the holy name, the, the sacred name, is being blasphemed 
because you have taken that name upon yourself and you have lived in vain. Do you remember how I began this message? Jacob Needleman, remembering the rocket launch of Apollo 17. And do you remember what he said? People had just seen the wonder of that launch and, and he said, and then there's total silence. People just get up quietly helping each other. And they're kind, they open doors, they look at one another, they speak quietly and interestedly. They're suddenly moral people because the sense of wonder, the experience of wonder had made them moral. And for us, this name that sums up all other names is the name of Jesus. Philippians 2 says that he has been given a name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, if you take that name upon yourself, you must not abuse that name by how you live. There are all sorts of people who have little knowledge of that name and they use the name of Jesus to curse. I think they do that because they're inspired by Satan himself for he does not want the world to know how precious the name is, but you do. You, Christian, hear me, it must not be so with you. You must live in such a way and speak his name in such a way so that it will be apparent to all who hear you that the name of Jesus and the name of our God deserves reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. John, we've had conversations like this before, and you know, you've really helped me recognize the importance of it, but we, we tend to use words flippantly, even the word of the Lord our God. Yeah, I mean, I've been even in Christian circles where, where people will tell a joke and uh, they will have, you know, they'll have God in it, and everyone kind of chortles and laughs, but this idea of saying, I would never mention the name unless it is for worship. We have got to rethink how we think about God and address his name. And I, I think our failure to do so reflects this, this lack of reverence and fear that we have for him. And it tells us how badly we're in need of revival. I, I think the longer we go on in this flippant speech about our, about our savior, uh, the more we define ourselves as people who hardly know God at all. I know I'm sounding really passionate about this, but I, I just can't begin to emphasize to those who are listening how important this is. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow, the continuation of the Ten Commandments right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Every day we hear from listeners from right across the country. And your words of encouragement mean so much. Sean recently wrote, I often listen to Dr. John's Bible teaching while driving to work. It's given me great insights into God's message to his people. Back to the Bible Canada is indeed an inspiration. Well, we're so grateful for messages just like these, but they only happen because of your partnership in making Bible teaching you can trust available to as many people in as many places in as many ways as possible. One way we want to do that this month is by sending you our very new free combo CD series called Joy in Tough Times. Five messages from Dr. John and five Laugh Again episodes to encourage you and to remind you of where confident joy is really found. 
So just call us today for your free copy of Joy in Tough Times by calling 1-800-663-2425 or by visiting backtothebible.ca.